Well, hello and welcome to the Argus Hydrogen and Future Fuels podcast. Uh, welcome back. It's been a little while since our last one. Uh, we were putting out our, our hydrogen costs uh, in the meantime, but we'll be back to a normal recording schedule from now on. Today, I'm joined by William Rowe. He's the founder and CEO of Octopus Hydrogen. Uh, so, William, hello and welcome. I wondered if you could give us a little backdrop to Octopus and then what Octopus is doing in hydrogen. We started about 18 months ago. Uh, with the vision to bring about green hydrogen service. And I suppose that's a, a nice catchy phrase, but what does it really mean? So when we looked at the market, it was very apparent to us that in order to have green hydrogen available for different applications, we needed to take sort of responsibility for different elements of that production and supply process. And so effectively, what we do is we wrap up buying power, turning it into molecules through electrolysis and then delivering that to customers where they need it. So that's really the, the crux of why we started the business. Understood. So the, the, the hydrogen as a service, I suppose, is is making, well, it's giving a defined type of hydrogen and then making sure it's actually delivered all the way to the customer. Exactly that. And I suppose just taking a quick step back on it, the reason why we saw an opportunity in the hydrogen space was, you know, we, we're firm believers in ever increasing amounts of renewable generation sources on the electricity grid. So whether that be wind or solar or even low carbon technologies such as nuclear. But let's say we see more and more wind and solar coming online. And because of that, balancing supply and demand is not going to be, say, a trivial task. So, you know, in, in the traditional sort of electricity grids, you know, when you've got more demand, you burn more of the, the feedstock and produce more mm. power and typically managing supply and demand was a, a sort of generation side problem whereas in the world of renewables you know we can't control when the wind is blowing and when the sun's shining <laughs> and so we need controllable demand and things like control of electric vehicle charging control of heat pumps you know control of some of the industrial mm. large applications will make sense but we didn't think those things on their own would be enough and so actually controlling the production of molecules in the form of green hydrogen makes complete sense if we can do that dynamically to be supply supportive of the grid rather than sort of being a drain on the grid we end up with a really yeah. useful sort of symbiotic system so i suppose a lot of the um projects that are, are talked about and, and making waves uh they're all well no, not all but there, there's a, there's a huge amount of large projects coming on are you guys trying to follow the same type of what would you say centralized production and distribution or, or do you do, does your model differ yeah, it's a really good question, Tim. And I think we definitely see merits in those large projects. I mean, more than merits, we think a lot of them make a lot of sense. But we focus on, say, more like 10 to 20 megawatt projects at this point. And there's a, a couple of reasons why we do that. So first is really just about actually getting shovels in the ground now. So the problem with the, the large projects, say 100 megawatt plus, is typically they are um, further down the track. So, you know, whether they be 25 go live, 2026 go live, that kind of time frame is most of the ones we've seen at kind of that kind of time horizon. Whereas we wanted to be producing gas sooner than that. So there's kind of a, a just a basic pragmatism required in terms of what sort of scale project can you get over the line quickly. Yeah. Um, coupled to that is most of the electrolyzer manufacturers kind of offer products and by a product, I mean, you know, power in, water in, gas out. Um, yep. without having to do bespoke design of the balance of plant or the water purification or all that sort of stuff. And they typically offer that in the kind of 5 to 20 megawatt range. So as you go beyond that kind of scale, you effectively start walking into a lot more burden on the EPC side of things and a lot less kind of on the manufacturer side. And so we're yeah. quite 
happy at the moment to kind of double down on where the manufacturers are kind of shaving costs out and building certified products that kind of makes sense for us. And then the final reason is if you look at new build renewables, especially in places like the UK, there's not really enough renewables being built that are not offshore that can accommodate Mm. hundreds of megawatts of electrolysis on a sort of private wire basis. So it kind of makes sense to focus on the sort of, you know, what size of renewables are being built? What size of products can we buy? And what can we actually do in the next couple of years? That's kind of yep. why we focus on those side of things. So our strategy is to have a, a network of 10 to 20 megawatt sites across the UK over the next two or three, four years. And then as those bigger projects become more viable, products kind of start to match that. Then we'll look at those bigger projects, you know, as and when the market kind of gets to that point. Yep. So that's what would you say? That's that's more of a sort of a distributed style of production and then trying to be relatively close to uh, consumers. So uh, presumably yeah, that exactly that, Tim. compressed gas uh, as delivery rather than pipelines or liquefaction or ammonia. This is this is we're talking straight. I don't know what thirty bar hydrogen. Yeah, more like uh, so thirty five megapascal, but more like seventy megapascal typically. But yeah, that kind of range. So three three fifty to seventy bar, uh, three fifty seven hundred bar hydrogen. Yeah, yeah, that sort of tube trailers and that that kind of delivery. Exactly. So don't get me wrong, pipelines are great for transporting molecules a long way on it with a very known pattern. But, you know, there's not a lot of dedicated hydrogen pipelines built. I think there's some in Houston and a few other places, but typically there's not an awful lot of those built. So for us right now, that kind of road-based transportation makes the most sense. Yeah. And then I suppose just focusing or zeroing in on the customer a little bit, you're specifically producing uh, electrolytic hydrogen, green hydrogen. Are you seeing a a demand for that over other types of hydrogen? Yeah, so, I mean, we rushed off our feet in terms of inbounds around wanting zero carbon hydrogen. So there's an awful lot of demand around it. Now, admittedly, most people want it at a price point that's as <laughs> the same as where grey hydrogen's always been at mm. large volume. So, you know, they read, they read the press and they go, oh, brilliant, you know, hydrogen at $2 a kilo, we'll, we'll have lots of it at that price point. But once you kind of take away the kind of, let's say, very optimistic, future-looking kind of potential demand and start focusing on where the reality is. Yeah, there's a lot of demand there for uh, low-carbon hydrogen or, or green hydrogen. And, and to be honest, the reason is because you've got ever-increasing targets externally going on to businesses. So you've got some very progressive businesses that have net zero strategies, but you also just have straight sort of product production targets or, or other sort of things forcing businesses to need to look at this. So wherever there's kind of scope one, two or three emissions that they need to tackle, you know, people are looking at electrification and hydrogen very seriously. There is a huge amount of interest that we always have uh, on, you know, capacity and build out. And on prior podcasts, we've talked about, um, you know, production technologies. We've talked about fuel displacements and things like that. So it's uh, this is the first time we've had a, a green hydrogen uh, producer and developer on. Uh, so I'm very interested, as most people are, about the demand side of things. Can you shed any light on that? Yeah, so <clears throat> it's a really good question, Tim. I think for us, because at the moment we're focusing on producing hydrogen in kind of tons per day per site but not tens of or hundreds of tons per day per site and spread across uh sort of like a regional coverage of sites there's a few obvious markets that we can cater to say better than others so there's you know if you're looking at producing green hydrogen for refineries which i know is you know some people's business models or ammonia producers clearly you're looking at very large sites where you're kind of either blending or displacing against that gray hydrogen um, and you don't really need to worry about additional offtakers because you've got a very comfortable kind of offtaker on site and so it's really around yeah. can you get enough power to the site and can you get the, the large projects over the line you know whereas 
our model is much more to have this kind of regional spread. So because of that, there's certain sectors we can cater to particularly uniquely, let's say. So things like the, the construction sector. So if you think of your typical construction project, you know, you're building a new bit of, you know, motorway or, or freeway, you know, uh, from, from A to B. By definition, it's unlikely that, that there's going to be power conveniently located along the route of that new motorway being built. And there's probably not the need to have a large grid connection available on an enduring basis along that. So that the, you see what you find is, there's customers that are, say, have to build a project and they need to do it in a lower carbon way. And electrification yep. isn't really a viable option for them. And those projects are going to be time boxed in their nature, whether they be sort of one to five years. And they're going to be all across different geographies. So because of that, hydrogen plays a really unique role. And our way of producing hydrogen kind of caters that really well because we can you know, deliver hydrogen from production site A to that project very easily. Mm. We have a regional model. It's not like, you know, oh, we could only service projects in a very specific, you know, locality near our pro- yes. near our production sites. We can serve different areas because we have that regional coverage. Now, obviously, matching supply and demand is challenging, but at a macro level, you know, the regional approach really caters well to those kind of construction-based projects. Yeah, it, it makes a lot of sense because you've got these areas which are based, both remote and lack permanence. Uh, and so <laughs> I, can, I can see the attraction there. Yeah, they're, they're really unappealing to build the kind of <laughs> yeah. classic big infrastructure piece, aren't they? But, you know, they, so it's, 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 a, it's a match made in heaven for us and one that w- doesn't work well for your classic infrastructure kind of play. Yeah, well, that's um, so, so that's basically a sort of diesel displacement uh, activity. Let, let's swing back to that. Can you tell us a little bit? Uh, you've spoken just now. You said you, you, you're looking at things like, uh, say, five to 20 megawatt uh, production facilities. And I, th- I think that you have, I think it's 100 megawatts targeted for the end of 2024, something like that. Can you tell us a little bit about the projects that you have uh, in development at the moment? Yes, and you're right. Yeah, so our, our goal at the moment is 100 megawatts live by the end of 2024. So that'll typically take the form of 10, 20 megawatt individual projects. And then what we've got in flight right now, so we, we've got two one megawatt systems being built today, both in the UK. So one's in uh, Nuneaton at Myra Technology Park. So Myra Technology Park is a kind of automotive testing and um, engineering capability centre. So it's, it's one of the sort of premier ones in, in Europe, and it's a really great place to be involved with as a project. So what we're doing is we're they're building seven megawatts of solar at that site. It's actually funded mm-hmm. by Octopus Renewable, so it's a, a nice bring together of the sort of our, our major investors' kind of capabilities as well. So we're building seven megawatts of solar, and we're building a one megawatt electrolyzer. And then there'll be gas available on site to service the testing of new fuel cell applications. And then they'll also, we will use some of the gas to um, make available for applications in the local area. A clear with a one megawatt site, we're only making you know, two, 300 kilos a day there. So it's not like we're servicing a huge volume of external customers, but it's a good development project for us. And, and to be fair, I mean, you know, as I said, we're only just just about 15 months old. So we kind of we went, we've gone pretty quick getting that live because we, we that should be live by um, June. So we kind of moved quickly on that. And the second project is in partnership with Zero Avia, um, who's one of the leading aviation uh, fuel cell companies. So looking at producing powertrains for aircraft, uh, different different scales. Um, the first one they're working on, or the, the most exciting one, is uh, uh, for their Dornier 228, I think that's the aircraft, I'm not an expert on aircraft actually thinking about it. But that's, uh, we're, we're, we're working with them to provide the hydrogen for the uh, R&D and certification of that aircraft, um, yep. which is great. Again, what's interesting as well, because one of the reasons why we were quite unique there, I suppose, is because 
if you look at the demand of an aviation customer during the certification phase of the aircraft, it's very, it's very inconsistent, you know. So when yes. you do a flight, you need a couple of hundred kilos of hydrogen, whereas the next day when you're not flying, you don't need the hydrogen. So kind of handling the peaks and the troughs is, and having an ability to take the excess gas or the spare gas and use it for somewhere else is part, you know, critical to getting the economics to work. Because otherwise, you know, they're effectively paying for very expensive ad hoc deliveries of gas, which would be, you know, make the certification program Ruinous. almost impossible. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Yeah. So I guess one of the things I can see there is uh, the, the, the obvious theme is mobility uh, in, in that area. And that's something the UK is having a bit of a purple patch in at the moment. We've seen the big scheme in the, I think it was the Midlands, wasn't it, that was doing the, I think it was the Zebra scheme, um, pushing out a large quantity of uh, hydrogen buses, uh, buses, sorry. I think it was a hundred and, I think what it was now. Um, 124, I think it is. I think. <laughs> Thank you for saving me. Yeah, yeah. That's, uh, yeah. that's not small, not, not a small number. Um, and so it feels like mobility is having, you know, as I say, a purple patch. And in fact, when the more I think about it, the, the other area that's doing extremely well is um, is uh, on ground logistics. Um, that's been a strong area for for a number of years. Um, and you're, you're starting to see it moving out beyond what would you say uh, facilities, uh, would say covered facilities, further out onto the slightly heavier transport as well. So it's all it's all going in the right direction, exactly as most people were predicting. If there's a big push at the moment for um, a certification of carbon intensity of hydrogen. Now, I bring it up, obviously, because you're a green hydrogen specific uh, producer. Um, so, yeah, I'm curious as to your hot take on, on what's going on. In yeah, clearly, you know, the low carbon hydrogen standard, if it's, you know, whatever that number ends up being in terms of the CO2 intensity per kilo, as long as it's rigorously enforced and is adopted across different geographies in a sensible way and there's no kind of time-based shifting you know so a project can produce lots of co2 in the short term but then get away with it because in the future it's going to sequester carbon for example as long as it's fair i can see there being some like merit in just a general standard that comes along however i suppose and, and, and where sorry where i see that being particularly applicable is things like displacing current gray hydrogen that say let's say um typically might take quite a long time given there's already uh given the required electrolysis and where you know, you could already do carbon capture and storage on those sites. However, it doesn't seem there's a lot of appetite typically to do that. It seems like most of those kind of big refinery and ammonia applications are looking at green and I guess future proofing themselves. And instead, the kind of blue hydrogen side is typically pushing onto things like hydrogen for heat and stuff like that, which I, I personally feel a lot less kind of credibility around those kind of stories and, and feel like it's kind of, you know, look, let's use grey hydrogen or green hydrogen for refineries and then pump a load of blue hydrogen to the gas network. It doesn't strike me as particularly good for consumers or, or, or costs. But I suppose from my, my side on the electrolytic hydrogen, we push for um, a very rigorous standard around what low carbon is defined as. So for me, that means certificates and temporal correlation associated with the power. And the reason why is because it's not a problem, it's not an insurmountable problem to solve that, right? You know, we have the data available. We already settle power um, in every geography or every, you know, kind of geography with a, a degree of separation or competition within that market at different settlement periods. You know, in the UK, it's half hour in Europe, it's 15 minutes. So we can easily handle how much power you've bought for a given period of time and how green that power was. I started off the uh, podcast apologising for being so slow in, um, in being between podcasts because we, we were busy wrangling costs and putting hydrogen costs together. Now, obviously, from your side, you've got not pilots, but small scale projects now moving from Excel to the drawing board. And so I've got to ask you, obviously, you did the modelling beforehand. You must have done. Uh, how did the modelling stack up against reality when you got to site? So, so 
It depends who you ask, Tim. So if you ask our commercial team, they'd say I was way off. <laughs> if you ask me, if you ask me, I'd say I was basically bang on. So I suppose that's the kind of entrepreneurial bias you get. <laughs> um, but I think if, you, if I was to give you a slightly more uh, sensible answer, I think, you know, once you get beyond reading the very, very generic, high level, long term forecast and start reading the kind of more sort of on the ground numbers now and then go into a project, lots of things are are quite accurate. So, you know, CapEx costs for electrolysis, CapEx costs for compression, CapEx costs for storage. Those things were broadly in line with our expectations, to be honest, and, and do get materially cheaper as you scale up. We've, we've seen that, you know, I think uh, kilowatt hours per kilogram. Uh, i.e. the efficiency of systems is definitely one that there's a big area for sort of variance let's say between the kind of theoretical maximums and the realities of what systems are delivering on that's an interesting one for sure so you know you'll get ranges from you'll see it in the press people saying they can do it at 39 kilowatt hours a kilogram and and you know you'll get ranges with today's technology as high as 60 62 including the balance of plants so there's a real big delta in that number and clearly efficiency is really important Three, three words which are guaranteed to be heard all the time in this industry is hard to abate. Um, and obviously, we work with a lot of hard to abate industries uh, who, who, who provide who will be looking at hydrogen in volume. So, for example, you know, especially something like, let's say, uh, steel or cement. These are your classic hard to abate industries. Uh, and they're obviously huge volume ones. We don't talk that much about I don't want to say easy to abate. <laughs> I think that's going to be a problem. But but it feels like there's easier to abate industries. Um, and we did have a chat the other day just about, you know, we're talking about diesel displacement earlier. What about just diesel display, displacement in construction markets and those kinds of things? Where do you see a, a role uh, for hydrogen in those? When you're looking at, you know, net zero journeys for, for the world, you know, it's very obvious that certain applications are really, really challenging. You know, things like steel and cement production, just the sheer volume of energy required, kind of mm. regardless of source, is 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 a real challenge. And, and you know, lifestyle changes, etc. don't really do a lot. You know, it's hard to replace steel and, and cement, isn't it? You know, you can use more sustainable construction materials, but you can't really build bridges with, with, with wood, can you? Or we're probably not going to build multi-lane bridges with wood, are we? So there's a real challenge there. And like you say, so I, I think one of the things we like about diesel displacement is, okay, it, right now, Almost every construction site, and there's something like 30,000 diesel generators in the UK alone. So these are effectively somewhere between sort of 200 and 1 MVA system, uh, 201 MVA, 200 kVA and 1 MVA systems Mm. deployed at an area where there isn't sufficient power available or grid power available. And this generator typically sits there burning diesel. It's normally a non-Euro 6 compliant engine, although some do use that. So let's say so it's, the, it's not great from an emissions perspective. So you get noise, you get loads of local emissions, and you get the CO2 from the diesel side. Now, you sort of flip that to a, a product specification that could tick that. OK, so can, can fuel cells produce that much power? Uh, it, yes. Can we deliver hydrogen to them um, and compete with, with the diesel on price? Pretty much, yes. And then what's the benefits of the app, what, of the alternatives to the hydrogen power unit? Well, it's silent. There's no local air quality issues. And if you're using green hydrogen, it's zero CO2. So over there, so because the road miles are the same of delivering, whether you're delivering mm. diesel, let's say, or hydrogen. Okay. Slightly volumetric sides of, 
aside, but let's say, you know, you're just delivering, a, you're doing a road-based delivery. So it's, it's a really easy way to kind of get real tangible benefits that benefit local communities and macro because it starts that journey from a construction side. You know, the construction sector knows that, you know, taking cement around and using steel is hard, but they're not going to get there tomorrow on those things. Whereas yeah. they can start dipping their toe in the water with a zero carbon future by getting rid of their diesel generators. Then they'll get rid of their HDVs. And then yeah. eventually they'll get into using hydrogen in the cement and the steel production. So it kind of all flows through. You know, they need to start somewhere because if, if they don't start somewhere, they can just keep sitting there saying, well, it's all really hard and we need government to solve the problem for us. Whereas if, you know, diesel generator replacements is a nice way of them demonstrating that there's appetite to do it where it's possible to do it and, and, and easy to do it today. And it is easy to do it. And I was going to say the other thing, Tim, is the marginal cost difference, even if you're using hydrogen that, say, doesn't compete quite pound for pound on the diesel in terms of energy, uh, you know, pounds per kilowatt hour, because yeah. it's going through a diesel generator and you've got to amortize the asset, et cetera. You know, the typical power price from a diesel generator is probably, you know, two to 300 pounds a megawatt hour. So, yeah. you know, it's not that hard to compete in that. Kind of, you know, you're, you're moving the needle from being expensive power to marginally more expensive power or compete with expensive power. It's not like it's, you know, 10 cents a kilo, uh, 10 cent, you know, dollar cents a kilowatt in Saudi Arabia kind of power. It's not that cheap. It's, it's expensive power anyway. Yeah. So it's pretty easy to compete with it. But it also helps to, it gives a specific stick for people to grab onto who want to decarbonize. Because it's not just marine fuels companies and users that want to do this. It's, uh, it's construction firms as well. I've spoken to quite a few big ones. And obviously the biggest one they can pull on straight away is to look at the provenance of their steel. So you could, you can abate 60% of your, um, your emissions or embedded emissions if you're moving for something which is recycled steel rather than virgin steel. Um, so there's things to be done there. But specifically when we talk about people in construction, their system boundary is the site um and so <laughs> the, the diesel side is the part to decarbonize whether it's in in plant um, whether it's in you know energy or local direct energy production whether it's in you know yeah, many of these things so that's that's the that's the easiest lever for them surely yeah yeah i'd agree entirely i mean and and the other thing sort of is so where the application, so often diesel generators, for example, are used to produce light and heat. Well, obviously, a mm. fuel cell gives off a lot of excess heat. So where you do a combined system, for example, where the fuel cells provide in, you know, electricity, whether that be for smaller excavators or whether that be for um, the welfare units, light, etc. You can also then harvest some of that heat for, say, hot water. So you then you really bolster the efficiency you know you can see combined efficiencies of say circa 85 percent if you consider the electric electrical output and the heat output so all of a sudden it's you know the efficiency gains and the local air quality benefits etc etc really start to kick in and like you say you know that's coupled with the bigger demand around things like the plant and the hgvs as well so the whole thing becomes a really nice ecosystem and look you know i'm not the only person saying this there's plenty of people in the construction sector you know who i talk to day in day out who completely got this vision and they just need help helping get in there you know and typically the thing they need is is green uh, hydrogen molecules delivered to those sites and luckily for us that's a, a sort of a business model that we're well placed to cater to yes and that'll just bolster their credentials further because i suppose the issue is that whether the hydrogen is produced well in terms of um, emissions at point it's color irrespective the, the, these will be the benefits um but if they want to go all the way through then, then green hydrogen is the way can i ask um yeah although i think, would say to me oh, i don't think you can use gray hydrogen to displace diesel for things like a diesel generator plant or um hgvs because if you, if you use say i mean look if you use chloroalkaline or blue hydrogen then 
Mm. Yes, okay, you, you'd be getting a net CO2 benefit and you get all the other benefits you described. But if you use straight grey hydrogen, you are net increasing <laughs> CO2. So they've got to be very careful about sort of that journey because, you know, one would argue that there's no point going down the grey hydrogen route for things like this, displacing diesel. It's a poor, a poor use case all round. And I'd be first to argue that. I mean, that, that's part of the reason why I'm so interested in the certification side, mainly so that people, you know, you know, I hate the kind of talk. I don't, don't know if we've discussed this before, but, but the thing is, I think it's very important that people know exactly what it is they're buying, you know, on a kilogram per kilogram basis, basically, so you can make that informed decision. Yeah, and I agree entirely. And I think that's why for me, you know, it, you could you can easily imagine a world where we have digital certificates per kilo. Now, maybe you want to batch up into per ton or something like that. But in principle, you know, it's not an insurmountable data challenge for us to be able to record the provenance of different types of hydrogen, especially electrolytic hydrogen, because, it, you know, electrons are very easy to track with data. You know, there's no industry, you know, no production process over and above power in and water in gas out the other side. You know, it's very easy for us to demonstrate the certification. Now, clearly, some processes are slightly more complex and there's accounting treatment required you know say the chloroalkaline process that's that's quite let's say challenging and comes down to some opinions of where you want to decide to attribute the co2 but something like straight electrolytic hydrogen is pretty vanilla to calculate isn't it really so i've got to ask this really quickly because of the um we were just talking about sort of benefits uh, especially around local air quality issues with diesel displacement do you see the use of uh, hydrogen generators, for example, uh, on construction sites being, what would you say, incentivized to move to cities first. So I'm talking about, you know, um, you know Singapore, Tokyo, London, you know, urban centers uh, where there is going to be uh, some mayor in charge somewhere saying, look, you know, air quality, PPM, all these things are being monitored. This can have an immediate effect. Or do you think it can just go throughout the chain anyway, like somewhere like High Speed 2 uh, or something like that, you know, these rural locations? Well, I think I think the, the the use case for both makes complete sense. But like you say, so, you know, I, I, I was lucky enough to jump off the tube a stop early today. I'm in, I'm in the office in London and I've, I walked via um, the corner of Regent Street to get to the office. And, you know, property on Regent Street's incredibly expensive you know and 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 when you're doing a construction project there you know the the marginal cost difference of mandating certain things such as no local emissions would be trivial in the cost of a renovation project or a construction project so for me it makes complete sense for within our city boundaries where we where we a have a lot of people going past these sites so that you know the local air benefits are actually really shared and then to sort of be it starts to get visible to people you know that we expect construction projects to be sustainable at least you know as far as they can be today so I, for me i think that's the obvious place it's going to go you know i can't imagine in two years time walking through mayfair for example and hearing a load of diesel generators to produce power for a, happening i just i just don't see it happening it's such an easy win to, to sort of say no more diesel generators as of x day and you know it'll be because it, the solutions are there from a technical perspective, the fuel solutions are there, and they can afford to do it in Mayfair. You know, the marginal cost of the difference on the property or the construction is, is trivial. Whereas, you know, yeah. in other areas, maybe that's not going to be quite so true. But yeah, for me, city centre construction is, is a complete no-brainer. Well, we already do expect the health and safety aspect to be there already. So uh, why not on the... Um... <laughs> on the sustainability side and we're going to have to wrap up in a second this is very practically speaking if a firm wanted to go co2 free on site today for generators for example could they do this not across you know i'm talking about in specific sites if someone wanted to do a marquee hey here we are in i don't know los angeles we want to do this are generators available um are there firms at the moment that you think can you know practically ferry 
hydrogen to site and store it and those kinds of things. Can it be done today? Well, so if you look at the three core elements of a construction project like like that, say a city centre build, okay, so the big cranes are already electric typically, and then you've got the HGVs driving things in and out. They could be fuel cells very easily. They could also be electric, depending on the range, etc. You've got the plant side of things. Again, there is plenty of different applications. Typically, they have been looking at combustion rather than fuel cell, but the combustion of the hydrogen, you know, we sort of assume the NOx issue gets resolved will be mm-hmm. zero CO2. And then you've got the on-site power demands or the, but where it can't be done through the grid, so the diesel generators. There is products available and gas available that could meet those products requirements. So, yes, it could definitely be done. Now, obviously, you've got the small things like the still source people used to cut, to cut, you know, bits of concrete, you know, the small bits and stuff like that. I'm pretty sure there's, I've not seen a hydrogen one of those, although now I'm thinking, why don't we start a business that makes those <laughs> as well? But anyway, that's probably, <laughs> but, you know, you're part of the very, very small side of things, the handheld machinery side of things. Then, I, yeah. I, yes, definitely. The big, the, all the key elements are there from a product perspective and a gas provision perspective. Exciting. Well, I hope to see some of these soon. Um, well, look, Will, thank you very much for coming on today. Absolute pleasure to talk to you. Um, we'll wrap there and the Argus Hydrogen Future Fuels podcast will return soon. <laughs>